chapter 13. We'll begin our, our study this morning in verse 22. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. Last Lord's Day, we considered just the text prior to this, and we, we gave thought to there the advancing of God's kingdom. And in the context of that, how we, we spoke of where Jesus, as he deliberately and purposely continues his journey toward Jerusalem, the, the truth that we're reminded of all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that is, his heart and his mind, was his sights were set upon going to Jerusalem. And how the kingdom of God advances very deliberately, very purposely, that Jesus goes as he wills. We see Jesus encountering those who stand in direct, direct opposition to him, and he encounters though, and he counters those who are in opposition with him as he will, doing what he wills, because he is the sovereign Lord. And so we're brought back to that picture here today, just the very first verse of our reading, just reminded of him passing through and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Luke keeps us. That ever before us, reminding us here of the larger context that Jesus is going somewhere. And though the world may look at it in a casual reading of the, the account of Jesus' ministry, the world might read the gospel of Jesus' life and get to the end and say, well, he did well until then, but he, he blew it and it, he suffered and he lost. But we understand that Calvary, in fact, with the resurrection was the was the consummate victory. The greatest of victories as the kingdom of God is advanced through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 13 verses 22 through verse 30. And he was passing through from one city and village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you began to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. There's that theme again we spent a considerable amount of time on last lord's day the theme of the kingdom of god verse 30 and behold some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last 
Well, we come to this text here, and again, it appears, just humanly speaking, that there's kind of a casualness about what's going on. It's almost, you get the picture that Jesus is kind of wandering around. And so Luke does remind us that he is deliberately on his way to Jerusalem. But he says in verse 22, passing through from one city and village to another, going where he will, doing what he will. In the midst of that, Luke brings us to this encounter with someone in the crowd there who has a question. The question asked to Jesus is, are there just a few who are being saved? And then there's nothing here in our text that indicates the reason for that statement. Although we understand from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where there He speaks about the, the narrow gate, the narrow way. He says there are few who will find that. Very few, comparatively speaking. But Jesus chooses not to answer that question directly here. He doesn't answer that question with yes, no, few, many. Rather, he chooses to address the larger issue, the personal issue, the issue that every person would have to consider whether you know, whether you understand how many people are going to enter into the kingdom of God, how many people truly are going to be saved. So Jesus here comes and he answers this question with, in fact, what proves to be a words of warning. That there is a responsibility placed upon all who hear the words of Jesus in that context. And through the continued hearing, through the proclamation of the word, even in our day, through the church age, in this context. And that warning comes forth in the form of the word he says there in verse 24 is to strive to enter through the narrow door. That there is to be a striving. And we're going to look about look at what that means for us. But because he gives this warning and this call to strive to enter into God's kingdom, we want to consider this morning what warning, what reasons he gives Why is it so important that one should strive to enter into the kingdom of God? Now, we've considered earlier, just in fact, in the last chapter, that Jesus has already said at one point that you are to seek the kingdom of God. Let that be your priority. Don't concern yourself with secondary things, things of food, clothing, Protection. Don't be overly concerned with those things. Trust me for those things. If you're going to pursue anything, pursue the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom of God. And so we see, I think, in line with that, an emphasis here to the hearts of those who would hear that there is to be a striving. There is to be a genuine effort to enter into the kingdom of God. What reasons does he give here in our text? First of all, the first reason we want to consider is the present relation to the future. In other words, the relationship that exists between our present day life, our present day existence, and what will take place at some point in the future. One of the greatest significant contributions that Jesus makes in his teaching and his earthly ministry is that he reveals to us much about future events. Specifically, 
He reveals to us much about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of His return, when all will stand and give an account to Him. Many of His parables that He speaks, they have a theme of future accountability, future rewards, future retribution, punishment, but of some type of... Of judgment, Even the text that we read there in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, there's a referencing there. It's a picture to us of something that's going to take place when the, the bridegroom comes. And certainly a picture of the return of Christ becomes, even in Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents and the responsibility of those, the stewards who are called to give an account at some point in the future for what they have done. Matthew 25 continues there with the, with the picture that Jesus gives of when He returns in His glory of the sheep and the goats being separated. Where Jesus is there upon His throne there, this future accountability that is thrust before us, not only in those, there's certainly a, a sampling of it, but in so many of the teachings and the parables of Jesus. So a clear point should come forth for all of us in this. And that is that there is a connection. There is a relationship between one's present and one's future. They're intertwined. That one can expect something very specifically in the future based upon their experience of the present. We see that even through Luke's gospel. Very quickly, uh, let's take a quick run back through parts of, of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 and through 26. Here we have Luke's abbreviated accounting of the Beatitudes. Believing that these were probably spoke at a different time. That these, he's not shortened the Sermon on the Mount here. But the likely that Jesus spoke these at a different time. But listen to what he says here. Verses 20 through 26. And the blessings and the woes. Blessed are you who are poor. And the idea might be conveyed. Blessed are you who are poor now. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the name of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, what? Your reward is great in heaven, in the future. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Then look at the woes, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. Now, the word now isn't there, but it's certainly implied. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So there is the correlation, the blessing and the woes tied to one's present experience. We see over in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, implication now, 
the Son of Man will be, future tense, will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There is a direct correlation between what transpires in the future with what is taking place now. The one's treatment by Christ Himself is based upon one's confession of Him now. Luke chapter 10, verses 13 and following. I just think it's good to review these places that we've been over the last few months. And so I'm just sticking with Luke here. Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 14. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. What's this? Future day of judgment. Tied to what? Tied to their unrepentant attitude. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. So there, the future of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, based upon their impenitence now, or in the day of Christ. Luke chapter 11, verses 31 and following. <clears throat> The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Implication, because this generation is now unrepentant. There will be a future judgment. And these other cities, these other people will stand up in condemnation against you. Because they responded to the light which they had. Luke chapter 12. Verses 8 and 9, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Certainly the implication there of a future time of being denied or owned. Chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Based upon what? Based upon his present experience, his present behavior. Verse 48, But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So again, there's this correlation, future retribution based upon present action. And then in 13, Luke chapter 13, where we were just a couple of Sundays ago, verses 3 and 5. I tell you, no, unless you repent, and it's, it's late in here, but it's certainly here. Unless you repent now, you will perish. And then again in verse 5. Unless you repent now, while you have the day and the time of opportunity, now, unless you repent, you repent or you perish. 
So there's this correlation between what one does in their present life with what one might expect to transpire in the day of judgment when Christ returns. So look at our text here then. We see here in verse 24, strive to enter. That's the now. That's the present day obligation, the present day responsibility. Strive to enter for, and the for they're using the sense of, because many will seek to enter, that's future. There are going to be those who will seek to enter into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. And he says they will not be able. Implication here being the reason that they were not able to enter then in the future is because in the present, when they had the opportunity, they did not strive to enter the kingdom of God. So what is this? Striving. The word strive here simply means struggle. We use that, that's the foundation of word from the Greek where we get the word agonize. And the picture that comes to mind is the, is the energy that is exerted of one who is involved in a wrestling match. And I don't know how many of you have ever been wrestled. Men, I trust. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in that, but it's a very... Intense, and I'm not talking about what's. I'm not talking about the comical things. I'm talking about the genuine sport of wrestling. But it's a very intense activity where one must give all of his strength and all of his body and all of his attention to what he's doing with the the intent of pinning his opponent, and at the same time not being pinned by his opponent. But it's a very intense activity. It requires a great deal of training and a great deal of energy is exerted while one is involved in this activity. And that's the word here that's used here. This word for striving is is to exert oneself to the fullest. Whatever may be demanded of me, I'm giving myself to that. It's the opposite of indifference, of carelessness, And a sense of false security. So then. Is Jesus here saying that. One enters into the kingdom of God. One is saved. By his human effort. That it's by one's willingness to exert himself. By one's striving. That it is in fact not of grace. That is dependent upon you and your strength and your striving and your giving of yourself and your exertion. Is that what he's saying here? I think we would quickly reply to that. Of course, that's not what is implied here. We understand that salvation is of grace, but we also understand that salvation by grace, when it's worked into the heart of the individual, that it is salvation that includes an enabling grace. And the picture of the balance that was given to us in the Paul cites in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, there to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working to will and to work 
So there is the desire, there is the intent of doing what is honoring unto God, what God requires of us, but recognizing that we can't take credit for that. That it is God who gives that grace, who gives that longing, who gives that desire, but also gives that ability. So that when we come to the word here of striving here, we're not to conclude here, well, it's, it's all of man's effort. It's what a man must do for himself. No, it's just simply saying this, that where grace is present in the heart of an individual, that there will be a striving after the kingdom of God. There will be a pursuit of his heart. He will long for this thing. It will be a passion of his heart and he cannot lay it aside because he understands the consequences. And so you strive. You give yourself to it. And you have perhaps that sense, that feeling, it's all of me. But the realization is, it is of God. That's what we have here, the salvation's enabling grace. And understanding also that it is a grace of repentance. It is a grace of faith. That brings us into the kingdom of God. So if there is this striving, there is this exertion of oneself. It's not something that, that we do and trust that God will look upon it and be pleased and will bring salvation. It is, a, it is a striving along that God has implanted within our hearts. It is of His initiative. It is His gift to us. He gives to us that gift of repentance and that gift of faith. But the point is this, that one should give all diligence. One should give himself without reserve. One should exert himself to the fullest and seeking entrance into the kingdom of God. And very simply, that striving is first portrayed in this. Repent. Repent. There's the first sign of striving. Of brokenness before God. Of recognizing my need of God. Of recognizing my alienation and separation from God. Of recognizing my own, my own unfitness to have anything to do with God. And to come to Him with empty hand and plead for His mercies. To repent. The door of opportunity, the entrance to God's kingdom is open now, is open in this day. And a failure to act now, a failure to act in this present time bears the consequence of the future, of the time when you will stand before Christ. And there the door of opportunity is closed. So one cannot live indifferently and one cannot live disobediently to Jesus Christ, indifferent to his work and to his teaching and have any hope of being welcomed into his benevolent presence in eternity. If Christ means nothing to you now, he'll mean nothing to you then other than he will stand as your judge who will condemn you. So there is this correlation between the now and what takes place. And he says there that many will seek to enter then. Verse 24. Many will seek to enter. They will. And they will be there in their pleading and their reasoning we see in verses 25 and 26. But we also see in verse 28. 
perishing. Weeping. The gnashing of teeth. The weeping there of an inconsolable sorrow. A sorrow so great that there is no consolation. And a gnashing of the teeth. And the commentators have been agreed on that this gnashing is even a rage. It's an anger. Or perhaps a helpless despair. We say, well, is such a future just? You know, there are those who, is, who deny the eternal eternal existence of, existence of the damned and say, well, that's just not just. That's just not fair that you suffer eternally for, relatively speaking, minor crimes and offenses. Is it fair? Is it just for one's presence sins to receive such a sentence of this weeping, this inconsolable sorrow and and this hopeless despair and this gnashing, this, this rage of where the, hang, the pain is, is so intense that you're, that you're angered and you're, and you're gnashing your teeth. And despairing. Is it just? Well, if we understand that our sins and our offenses are infinitely and immeasurably offensive against an infinitely holy God, we don't quarrel with this. If we understand the wickedness of our sin, the measure of our sin, which none of us grasp to its fullest, and if we understand the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God, and the great distance that stands between the sinner and a holy God, we don't quibble with eternal damnation and eternal suffering. And if anything, we realize I probably deserve worse. But quibble or not, that's the fate. Like it or not, the words have been stated. This is what lies ahead for those who do not strive. For those who do not repent. For those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means. So let me ask you this morning. His entry and his membership in the kingdom of God... Is it a genuinely intense pursuit of your heart? Do you, as in the words of Jesus, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are your appetites, are your spiritual appetites as such that more than anything else, more than you want, more than you want food and water for your body, you want to be right with God? You hunger and you thirst for righteousness, a right standing with God and living with a sense of, of righteousness given to you. Is that the longing of your heart? 
Is it an intense pursuit or is it a passing fancy? Maybe it comes by once a week. Sunday morning we give some thought to these things. Have you met the requirements? Have you repented? I don't know why I keep coming back to this. Yeah, I do. It's just a text. But I mean, I just feel like I'm preaching to the choir every Sunday. But I just wonder, are there people here hearing this message week after week after week and you've truly, you've never really repented? And believers, as I look out and I see you and I know you and trust I have some degree of insight to where you are spiritually, are you still pursuing Are you still striving? Are you still repenting? Are you still being renewed in faith and having your heart set upon Christ anew on a regular basis because you're reminded of your own worthiness? Do you seek first today the kingdom of God? Do you seek first in your home with your family, with your children, the kingdom of God? Do you seek first in your workplace the kingdom of God? Are you striving or is it a casual interest that you give some thought to every now and then? It won't won't cut it. The word there Jesus used is very deliberate, very strong. Agonize over these things. Have you a concern for your soul? For where you'll spend eternity? So we must strive to enter God's kingdom because there is the relationship between the present and the future. Second reason is there's the painful reality of finality. The painful reality of finality. See, another reason that Jesus states here, gives to us in this text, is that once the verdict has been issued, it's irreversible. There's no going back. There's no changing of the minds. And note the sequence here of verses 25 and following. He says, once the head of the house, and of course here speaking of God, of Himself, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and gets personal, doesn't He? And you. Man, He just, he just talks, takes it right to Him, doesn't He? He says, and you. You begin to stand outside. Listen, folks, he's he's talking about the future. Something's going to happen. This isn't make-believe. And you stand out. You begin to stand outside and you, you knock on the door and say, Lord, open up to us. It's us. And He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Verse 26. It intensifies. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You know, we're from Capernaum. We're from Jerusalem. We're from Nazareth. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And then verse 27 I mean, you get pretty clear from the picture in verse 26 who he's talking about. When he's, they say, 
we ate in your presence and you taught in our streets. Pretty clear who he's talking about, right? It's Jesus. In verse 27, and he will say, I tell you, the response here, the rejection intensifies. I tell you, I've told you before, and I'm going to tell you again. I tell you, I say to you, the words of Jesus Christ, God Himself, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. I don't know how well all of you do as parents, but I think my children are aware that there are occasions that I will give an answer and they can make a plea and I may change my mind. But they're also fully aware that there are occasions that they make a request, they have a desire, and I give an answer. And they say something about it again, and I look at them and I say, I said, no. And we're not going to discuss it any further. That's the kind of word Jesus is giving here. I said, no. I said, depart. I said, I don't know you, and it will not be changed. There is no line of appeal to the verdict. The verdict is final. This is the supreme of supreme courts. The, the verdict has been passed, and it is irreversible. See, the verdict of eternity is without appeal. Why is it that, that we should strive, that anyone should strive? Why should one devote himself, give any excessive effort to seeking to enter into the kingdom of God? The reason is because once you get into eternity, once you pass from this life to the next or Christ returns, it's sealed. Your destiny is sealed. And whatever appeal you may think you might make, which Romans chapter 2 indicates there won't be any. There'll be no changing. It is a painful reality of finality. And I fear that there are many people who think they're going to be able to stand before God and make one last plea. Well, if I'm not ready, I got, I've, got, I've got a plea in my pocket. You're going to be barren. You're going to be empty. You're going to be silent. This ought to be a, a horror of every individual. The horror of entering eternity unprepared. Unprepared to fall into the hands of the living God. Unprepared because He's not your Father. He's your enemy. And you're His enemy. 
And he's in charge. And he's calling the shots. That ought to alarm us. The possibility of going from this life as I know it into eternity. Unprepared. The pleas for mercy will come, but they'll be too late. And the indifference that one has demonstrated toward Christ and toward His gospel, and the scorning of Christ and Christ's gospel, they will receive their due. And I fear that in, this, in many cases it will be simply those who have been in church and have not so much scorned it, but they've never embraced it. They've lived indifferently to it. Dear young people, have you, have you embraced it? Have you embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and owned Him as your Lord and as your Savior? Because you pass from here into eternity, which could happen at any point, it's done. Young people, are you striving to enter the kingdom of God? Is it an earnest pursuit and desire of your heart? Now the church, the church ought to weep. I shared yesterday morning with the men's meeting just as we were talking about evangelism and and just as I was studying over this text this week. I read in that verse 28, in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And something of the weight hit that, hit me this week. It's not hit me in a long time. I'm ashamed to say. And that is the, the perishing of the wicked, of the unbelievers. Now we can sit back with our Reformed theology and our Calvinism and rest in that God will get His elect and that's all there is to it. But friend, I think we need to weep. I think we ought to weep. We have family members. We have friends that demonstrate nothing nothing of the work of grace in their heart who are damned and doomed into an eternal destiny of this of weeping, of inconsolable sorrow and gnashing of the teeth, the pain so intense. We believe that about these people that we see and we don't weep, we don't care. It's not what, that's not Christ. I think the weight of that needs to hit us. For our friends, for our families, for our children. That we strive for the kingdom of God, but we strive for them as much as we can in prayer and sharing and calling to live as though we believe that, that one must repent or perish eternally. Go out and tell somebody. (laughs) You need to repent. You may not even use the word. You need to turn. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your life of 
of rejection of God, turn to Him, turn to His kingdom. And those who rest in the in the air of, oh my God, my God wouldn't do such a thing. And the reply to that is this. No, your God would not. But your God exists only in your imagination. The true and the living God of Scripture who has revealed Himself, He has said, He will do this. You repent the words of Jesus, God Himself. You repent or you perish. And He makes it very clear in these verses of our text today. It's Jesus they're talking to. And He will consign them to the eternal destinies. So there is the painful reality of finality. Once this sentence is passed, there is no appeal. There is no changing And finally, we see the potential reversal of fortune. Why should one enter? Why should one strive to enter the kingdom of God? Why should it be something that we exert ourselves for? We apply ourselves to. The verses there in verses 29 and 30 tell us there's a potential reversal of fortune. Jesus' third reason. He says in verse 30, this is kind of the summation of it, some are last... Who will be first. And some are first. Who will be last. And let me fill in some. Let me put some filler in here. To kind of. Give us something. A clear statement of what he says here. I'm not adding here anything. That would have not been unwarranted by the context. Some are present tense. Some are right now. Last. Who will future tense. Be first. Then. And some are, present tense, now, first. Who will, who will, future tense, then, be last? Now, who, who are these? By the context, the first now, the first in the day of Jesus as he's saying this, those who were first then and then and now will be those who would be in the place of, of privilege. Those who have so much of God's grace bestowed upon him. Simply put, it would be the Jews of his day. That the Jews of his day were first. They had a history of God's revelation. They had a history of his dealings with them as a people. They have his covenants given to them as a people. And here they had... In their own day, in their own city, Jesus Himself. You don't get any more advantages than that. That's being first. That's the first of Jesus' day. And the last now, or the last of Jesus' day, would be those who are outside the realm of such privilege. The Gentiles. Those who... Are caught up in heathenism and idolatry and those types of things. Well, who are the first then? Since some are last, who will be who will be first? 
Who are those who will be first? Well, first of all, let's recognize that he says it's some. It's some. That's the reason I said this is a potential reversal of fortune. It's not absolute necessity. You can be first then and be first in the future. You can be last in the day of Jesus and be last in His return in the future. But there's the potential here of this reversal of fortune. So the first then, the first of this future time, be those who respond to gospel opportunity, whoever they may be. Those who repent and believe. And in verse 29, he says that they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So he's speaking largely here, speaking largely here of the Gentiles, but not exclusively. Pentecost is the perfect example. Thousands converted and they were Jews. So he's speaking largely of the Gentiles, of those who will be first. But it is whoever, whoever embraces the opportunity of their day, they respond to the gospel opportunity, they repent, and they believe. Well, who then are the last? Who are the last of this future day? Those who will be last in the future. It's those who rejected the gospel opportunity that was given to them, even though they may have been surrounded by it. And in the context here, speaking of the Jews of Jesus' day, Jesus speaking to the yous in verses 25 to 28, when He says, you, 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 who's He speaking to? He's speaking to a largely, almost exclusively Jewish audience. And He's saying to them, you are here first. You have every advantage, every privilege, and you are not going to be entering you are going to be last and incidentally it does mean by the context here to be last in that day does not mean you're coming at the end of the train but you're still in to be last means you're left out that's the wording that he uses there when he in verse uh, 28 last part you yourselves are being thrown out that's what it means to be last. It doesn't mean you're on the end of the train. It means you're going the other way. So there is then the potential reversal of fortune. Those who have received the favor of God. They've been favored by having the gospel message preached to them, proclaimed to them, and even lived before them. And they have that favor removed. And those who were once esteemed as the outsiders who were brought into God's kingdom. Listen, this should be an alarm, I trust, to those closest to gospel proclamation. That's us, isn't it? That's us. Thankfully, it's not an absolute. Thankfully, it is, says, and it's added here in the NASB, the word some, but it's implied by the context. It's not an absolute that all those who are first now will be last. But some will. Some will respond. Some will not. So it's a warning. To 
those who walk regularly in the hearing and the demonstration of the gospel who yet never respond. It's a warning. Lest we make the mistake of believing that it is sufficient to be in the context of, of hearing the word of God, in the context of the church, in the context of a Christian family, in the context of Christian fellowship within church. And we've never been converted. On the other hand, there's comfort. There's comfort to those who see their own unfitness, who see themselves as, I deserve to be last then. But they want peace with God. They want to be right with God. And at any cost. And so there's a striving. There's an earnestness. There's a seriousness about them, about the things of God, longing to be right with God. And always recognize that their own striving, their own efforts, their own intents are never sufficient. They're not sufficient to bring them into peace with God, but longing for, pleading for the mercies of God upon them. There's comfort. Those who would see themselves as deserving to be last, he says, can be first. Can be first. Those who are weighed and who are shamed by their sins. Those who can look at their own past experience, maybe a lifestyle of sin, and they can see their own unfitness. Maybe the years that they never even heard the gospel message and say, I've walked in ignorance and in darkness. I was blind. These things are so long. I've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they hear such a message brought to them and a call to them to come to Jesus Christ. And their response is, why would God ever save me? See, that's the person who will strive. That's the person who will exert himself to enter into the kingdom of God. Because there is this potential reversal of fortune. That those who appear to have so much given to them in grace and provision in this day, yet refuse to take advantage of it, they will be cast out. And those who seem to have been outside the realm of grace, but in the mercies and the kindness of God, somewhere along the line, He brought them into here and they heard it. And it was sweetness to their ears. They who were last, he says, some will be first. So why strive? Why give serious effort to pursue it in the kingdom of God? Because there is this potential reversal of fortune. Don't sit back and relax and get comfortable with where you are. Don't do it. Because as God has been kind and gracious to grant you the favor of hearing the gospel message week after week after week, He is just as capable of removing that from you if it is not a pursuit of your heart. If it has not become a passion of your soul to be first and foremost right with God. To enter into His kingdom. So the perspective that Jesus gives to us today on spiritual pursuits is this. You strive. 
you strive with everything that you have within you. It's how serious you ought to take these things. Whatever is demanded of you, you'd gladly do it because you recognize the consequences of failure to do so. Strive. Agonize. Exert yourself. Because there is. There is a relation between your present and your future. If entry into the kingdom of God means nothing to you now, It'll mean nothing to you then. You may not want hell, but you won't want heaven. But you'll be consigned to hell. And there is the the painful reality of finality. Once that verdict is passed in eternity, it's done. But the invitation to you today is repent and believe. If you're hearing that message here today, you're a candidate. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your life. Turn from yourself. Turn from any hope within yourself. Abandon yourself and come to God pleading for His mercies and embrace Christ, His work done for you. And then there is that potential reversal of fortune. Things will change. Things can change. Don't be one of those who sat in the context of of the gospel proclamation year after year after year after year and you became, as we termed yesterday, we became inoculated against it. It means nothing to you. But nor should you sit back today and say, I'm so unworthy. Christ would never receive me. Yes, He will. Christ receives sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but He came to call sinners to repentance. You know yourself to be a sinner? Jesus is a Savior of sinners. Come to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your kind mercies to us. Lord, we marvel at Your your words to our hearts. We thank You for the sobering reality that they bring to our minds. I thank you that you have worked such a grace in the hearts of your people here. Yet I fear that there are still some even here today who have yet to to consider the, the magnitude of what's placed before them week after week after week. So would you not be merciful? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.